Coming up on this week's show, the Atari Lynx Mini is a reality. An insane Nintendo 64 graphics upgrade. And we get stories from Broderbund and Pixar with Mickey Mantle. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every week with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books I'm a big fan of at the moment, The Secret History of Mac Gaming, the new expanded edition, celebrating the history of gaming on the Apple Mac with the gorgeous 480-page hardback book featuring more than 250 classic Mac titles. You can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our friends at PCBWay. Now, if you're working on a retro project at the moment, check them out. They offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards. And they offer services like 3D printing and injection molding. And you know that PCBWay are massive supporters of the retro community. So get an instant quote right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 367, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast that each and every Friday takes you on a nostalgic trip back to the classic age of video games, keeps you up to date on all the happenings in the world of retro from over the last seven days, and of course brings you a veteran of the industry on for a chat in the second half of the show. And we've got an absolutely incredible guest that we'll tell you all about in just a moment. Before we do that, though, Joe Fox sounding uh, nice and relaxed this morning after a week on holiday. Yeah, man. Just, you know, been chilling. I went to Centre Parks with the family. Uh, it was much needed. Had a bit of a break from modern technology and just just got got with one with nature and played a bit of Atari Lynx, you know. <laughs> you took your links with it. Interesting. So we went to um, Centre Parks about two or three years ago now, and I took my Switch with me. Mm. And we, the week we went there, it just poured down all week. So pretty much <laughs> most days we just sat inside yeah. playing uh, pool games on my uh, on my Nintendo Switch with the father-in-law. <laughs> so, I've uh, never been to Santa Park, so I always have this image that it's like a, a giant dome uh, that people are underneath and there's like pedlos on a lake and stuff yeah, like that. Maybe it, I've got it, it, like it is, the 80s vision of it. Oh. It is literally Biodome and Polly Shore. It's just, he's like everywhere you go. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's the thing though as well. Is that I've been seeing all these memes everywhere. Like, you know, when did we suddenly start charging 800 pounds to stay in Britain in a wooden hut? Oh, it wasn't that much luckily. Yeah. It, was, it was a lot. I wouldn't have been able to afford it, yeah. but yeah. Try going in June or something. Yeah, very, very, very true. It's only nice a milk carton at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> the way things are going. <laughs> but that's what this show's all about—a bit of escapism, isn't it? And uh, we've got an amazing guest that we're going to be talking to in the second half of the podcast this week. Inside the world of some legendary companies, Broderbund, Pixar, as well, with our guest Mickey Mantle. Now, this was a really interesting chat. Yeah, it was. It was, it was really interesting because you know. Pixar, they're a legendary company and the kind of early CGI and the development of that all goes into games technology, starts to go into obviously stuff like Toy Story and the other movies, but then going into stuff like Myst and, you know, a a lot of these kind of big CD-ROM and interactive productions. And uh, Mickey was a really big part of that. And he also talks about, you know, um, Steve Jobs being in the company. And I always find this really interesting that Steve Jobs starts these companies and he he didn't really know 
what was going to happen. You know, Pixar kind of started it and it was like, oh, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, the direction. But then they're massive hits. It's the same with Next Step. It's, it was just a kind of random box with Next. And then he's like, oh, yeah, the Internet's arrived on it. You know, um, So it's that kind of visionary idea that uh, Steve Jobs had and how that led into technology development. Yeah, I mean, Mickey, he um, he joined Pixar quite early on, I think, 86, when it spun out of Lucasfilm that it was part of before. And then, yeah, Steve Jobs invested quite heavily, became like a med- major shareholder in that year as well. Um, like you said, I mean, it started next a year before. The company, he started after he left Apple um, first time around. And, uh, yeah, just it kind of proves, I mean, we chat to Mickey quite a bit about, you know, his opinions of Jobs and uh, what working with him was like and how he, you know, he kind of saw the future yeah, he, a long he, time he kind of had else. that vision when other people didn't or didn't kind of mm. get what he was doing, you know, and uh, and then eventually came back to kind of save Apple, really. Um, a really interesting story, but also the the kind of development there of going into a, a Broadband and, you know, a, lo- a lot of titles that came out with that and that whole early CD-ROM market, which we love so much. Yeah, I mean, when he was at Pixar, Mickey, he actually um, was a manager of the uh, the Renderman project, which was used on you know movies like Aladdin, Lion King, Terminator Two as well. And obviously, '86 when he joined was the year that the um, the Luxo Junior desk lamp animation came out. That was the first ever CGI movie to win an Oscar. Yeah, so yeah. obviously that massively changed the company then. And then he left Pixar, went to Broderbund, and we talk about yeah, like you said, the early CD-ROM titles. He was really the um, the figurehead of the Living Books project as well, the guy that kind of oversaw all that, which was a series of interactive adventures for kids in the early kind of CD-ROM market. You remember when, you know, multimedia was like the big buzzword yeah, kid, as well. Kid Picks was another big one, wasn't it? Yeah, Pain Package for Kids at the, um, that, that Broderbund published as well. But I think it's still going to this day in, in one shape or another. It's something that's been going since the 80s on the Mac. And also, I mean, you know, we're talking about Broderbund in the 90s. We've got to talk about Mist. Oh, which was, yeah. you know, the biggest selling CD-ROM title for years. He's involved in that as well. And uh, yeah, just a really interesting chat. And also we talk about how he's brought back the Broderbund living books for modern generations, you know, because he's re-released these on like the iPad and stuff. Yeah, it works really years. well on the iPad and, yeah. the, and those kind of ideas. And also, yeah, we've seen Myst um, started hitting new machines and kind of new consoles and they've done some remakes of that. So it's good to see these kind of legacy things and early you know cgi and 3d coming back yeah definitely so we're going to chat to our mickey mantle our special guest he'll be on the retro hour in around half an hour from now now just before we hop into the news this week uh, can we just take a quick second to uh, say a huge well done and uh, also some quite sad news as well that our friends at arcade attack podcast are coming to an end now arcade attack's an incredible show we actually had the guys on didn't we uh, probably about five years ago now as guests on here yeah, yeah, I, I really love Arcade Attack. You know, they've done some absolutely amazing interviews and uh, they've hit their 300th episode and they've decided to hang up the headphones, which eventually will happen to all of us. Duh, duh, duh. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to still keep going though. But, um, you know, they've got a huge, amazing archive that we recommend you all listen to because they've got some really top interviews as well. And it's it's just a, a really nice vibe on that podcast. It is. And uh, I mean, you know, we probably know better than anyone kind of the amount of work that's involved in doing a weekly podcast, week in, week out. I mean, it feels like a full-time job sometimes, doesn't it? So it is totally understandable. And uh, yeah, like you said, Ravi, they've got an amazing back catalogue. If you enjoy our show and you haven't checked out Arcade Attack before, they've got some amazing guests and uh, a lot of like system deep dive episodes as well. I remember 
when we were out in yeah. Norway a few years ago, just kind of binge listening their, uh, you know, the Jaguar episode and the Amiga episodes they did, and they were just really well done. So um, massive well done to Adrian, Dill, Keith, James, Rob, Kev, all the team there at Arcade Attack. And if you want to check out their back catalogue and their upcoming 300th episode, um, I'll put a link to their podcast in the show notes as well. Right then, let's get into this week's news stories. Now, um, you mentioned that you took your Atari Lynx on holiday with you last week, Joe. Well, this little project here would have took up a, a bit less space in your suitcase, though, wouldn't it? It, it would have done. Uh, this was, uh, you know, my inspiration, really. And also, I think I mentioned Lynx on last week's show as well, and I was like, you know what? I think I've played it, like, less than five times, so I thought, mm. you know, I'll crank it out and have a go, you know, on a, on a Kung Fu and Bill and Ted on there as well. But, yeah, this is the Atari Lynx Mini, uh, which, unfortunately, isn't an official release. This is a, a one-off piece. This is a... But it looks very good. It, it looks like it could be. It looks like how they should have done the Atari oh, yeah. to me. Um, uh, you know, because the Atari, th- th- this is the model one, yeah, isn't the, it? The so paddle version, as it's nicknamed. Yeah, yeah, which is, if, if you've seen it in real life, it's huge. <laughs> it's um, quite a big machine. So the Mini, actually, for me, is like decent yeah. size. Basically. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not um, pocket-sized, is it, the Lynx, unfortunately? You know, unless you've got some pretty big jeans. But yeah, this comes from... Or, or your 90s combat trousers. Yeah. <laughs> down, down the side of my jeans, cargo yeah. pants and the big pocket on my knee. Um, but this has been made and designed by uh, Retro Relix, um, who is a French YouTuber and developer who's made this. So um, a little bit, it's been... There is, there is you know, subtitles on the YouTube channel, you know, the AI ones, but um, it, the, the video is in French. So, you know, we've... we've the articles and what we've made of it and stuff like that might not be a hundred percent accurate, but it looks pretty spawn, doesn't it, lads? It looks pretty uh what like what's what's the word I'm looking for? Legit licensed. Yeah, say magnifique. Yeah, magnifique. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it does look really mm. well done. And um the details are a bit thin on this, but we do know that it's got an IPS yeah. screen. Uh, you can tell. And I guess the battery life is going to be a lot better than original Lynx as well. Well, well, that's kind of the debate about this and that people have been saying, well, is it the original Lynx motherboard that he's put in there or is it an emulator? Which it doesn't actually, from the look of the video, I've kind of scrubbed through it and, you know, watched it like like you guys have with subtitles as well. And he doesn't really go into what the hardware is from what I've seen. He definitely doesn't show inside it. To me, though, there is um, one little giveaway when I'm watching it and that's the, um, he loads up like a, a game launcher menu. Yeah. And uh, that okay. looks very yeah, modern because yeah. I've seen like Everdrives on the, the links before and they basically have like a just white text on a black background, kind of a DOS kind of appearance. A, a really popular thing to do is put the McWill screen in there as well. So I was thinking with the IPS screen, oh, is that, is that a sign? But then I was thinking, no, it could actually be McWill. But um, yeah, seeing that it's got that kind of storefront or that, that you know, launcher. That's going to show that it's a, a different system rather than the original hardware. Do you think it's probably a, a Pi that he's put in there? Or yeah, a, I've a Pi Zero? got a feeling it'd be, I mean, it has to be something small to fit in the case. I mean, which we haven't really described yet, but it, yeah, it does look like an original um, Model 1 Atari Lynx. In terms of size, I'd say maybe about half the size of the original. I, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly impressive, though, because the case is... I don't know if he's 3D printed it or how he's done it. He must have 3D printed it and then kind of smoothed it down or something because when you see those 3D printed devices, they usually have lines yeah. on them or there's some kind of sign that they've been 3D printed. 
where this looks just stunning. And I guess he's not done the molds on it. So he might have done it some other way. It might be out of like some wood or something and then put a plastic surface on it. Or I'm not sure. It just looks so well done. Um, This looks like a retail product. That's the thing. And I mean, really, if you watch this video, it's about 15 minutes long. Most of it, the vast majority, at ninety percent, the video is just him playing games on it. Yeah, <laughs> um, so he doesn't really go all that in depth into what it is. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if it is three D printed, it looks damn good. Um, or if he's got like some kind of a uh, you know custom injection moulds made for it or whatever, I'm not really yeah, sure. Yeah, well, it's it's got the shine on yeah. it, hasn't it? It's got that plastic shine and that kind of nice smooth texture that really replicates the original. And everyone in the comments is just like. Where can I buy one? Where can I buy one? Yeah. You know, it does look awesome. Um, I'm just waiting now for like Atari to announce the Lynx Mini yeah. next month after seeing this. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, you know. I mean, I think we'd be down with that, to be honest, though, wouldn't we? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, very well done. So we're going to watch that video and hopefully more details will emerge uh, over the next few weeks. Now there's been uh, quite a bit of coverage about it. I'll put that in our show notes and everything else we talk about, you find them at theretrohour.com or on your podcast app. Obviously, Star Fox legendary Nintendo game. And it's always interesting to see new Star Fox games coming out. Although I've got to say, I haven't really been a big fan of any of the the Star Fox games since the N64, probably. I haven't really got into any of them. I mean, Adventures was all right, but it didn't feel like a Star Fox game. I played Star Fox Assault a lot. Um, Yeah. I I can't remember, really. I, I did it. I got it when I was doing my GCSEs. I think my dad bought it me you know, for doing better than expected in my GCSEs. Yeah. Um, so my dad bought it for me. So I played a lot of that one, but I haven't played any of the kind of, you know, the modern ones since then. Um, but the reason we are talking about this, that is, that is, um, did you know gaming have released a video where they interview the developers behind an unreleased Star Fox game, which seems to be quite a common theme with Star Fox, doesn't it? Yeah. They get worked on and then they don't come out or they get finished. So uh, this one wasn't finished. It was far, far from finished. Um, but I don't think it was even started. It, it wasn't even properly yeah. started. It was in, in early yeah. development. But this was going to be for the Wii U. And we did get a Wii U Star Fox game in the end. But this one was going to be very, very different to what we got. Um, and this was cancelled in 2013, I believe it was. But I think what really caught my attention and my eye about it is the graphical style of it was going to be designed around the puppets of the original mm. Star Fox. So you know in the original Star Fox and a lot of the artwork and the game box and everything, it was those puppets, wasn't it? Which, to me, are like so iconic and so of the time for Star Fox. And I think that would have been just such an iconic look, you know, for the game to have been in that puppet style. I don't know how they would have... It kind of looks a bit stop motion, doesn't it? Or or that kind of... uh, Yeah, maybe mixing that with 3D rendered and stuff. But um, it it does definitely stand out and it would have made it a unique title and also uh last month it was star fox's 30th birthday as well so i think we may start to see some like star fox collections coming out or some kind of releases of uh star fox titles and that's the thing i mean yeah star or star wing as it was known as here yeah um i do remember being you know very impressed graphically at that when it first um appeared on the super nintendo back in the day and there was one like you said that came out on the on the Wii U, Star Fox Zero, which I've never played. I mean, it says in this article on Eurogamer that it was a worst-selling Star Fox game in the series. I don't know whether that's because it was a bad game or just because nobody was, bought a Wii U. It was, from what I understand, I've not played Star Fox Zero either, but it was the controls. So obviously, right. you know, it was the Wii U. You had the gimmick of the game, the, the screen, and how you aimed in it was you held the screen up to like the TV. 
Mm. So you're trying to control your, I could, I could be wrong, but this is pretty much my understanding of it. You're controlling your, your, your star wing, your ship. You're flying around using the controllers, but then you're also having to aim by using, you know, moving the control pad around to aim and shoot. So can you imagine right. how disorientating and difficult that must have been? It, it was very hit and miss with the Wii U, um, some mm-hmm. of the titles and the interfaces, how yeah. they actually work. Like some got it really right, yeah. like Mario yeah. Kart. Um, and, and some were just yeah, like, and, uh, <laughs> like so, and quite yeah, hard I think to Star control. Fox Zero was one of the more mad ones, but Star Fox Armada, uh, which was in what you know, which never came out. The idea with that one was going to be, um, that literally the uh, the gamepad was just going to be like your map and your data and your your you know, your ammo and your upgrades yeah. and stuff like that. Uh, that's the yeah. best way to do it. So, um, I remember Resident Evil know, did that, uh, didn't it, on the Wii U? Yeah, yeah and Mario Kart also had the map for the race so you could see your position in there and then a big horn yeah. as well yeah oh yeah i remember <laughs> yeah, that on the game um, it was also going to have um local co- local co-op on it as well um where the second player could have been a gunner so one one player would control the uh the ship with like you know the nunchuck and the wii remotes obviously the wii u was compatible with them and fly around and shoot um but then the second player was going to have the gamepad i guess in the vein of what they did in star fox zero and you know but like they didn't have idea. to fly fly the, the you know the spacecraft as well. They would just be a gunner, like you know, on the bottom of the ship shooting enemies and stuff like that, which I think would have been a really nice cooperative mode. Um, yeah. And then also, uh, interestingly, there was actually going to be like a Dark Souls element to it, where people could invade each other's games and just like take oh, wow. each other out. <laughs> so there was going to be like a massive online, you know, like multiplayer kind of aspect to it as well, where people would just fly into your game. And suddenly, you know, there'd be a player versus player kind of match, which is quite interesting. And then it also, they were moving away from the on foot, you know, that you got in like Star Fox Adventures and Star Fox Assault. It was going to be, you know, just solely back, you know, on rails in, in, the, in the spaceships again, which I think is what they did with Star Fox Zero anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And it was also going to be a continuation from um, Lilac Wars from Star Fox 64. Right. I'm going to ask you the biggest noob question ever now. Um, what's the difference between Lilac Wars and Star Fox? <laughs> like, I always got told, um, oh, Lilac Wars. and Lilac like, oh, Wars. Cool, so obviously never... in the UK, in Europe, uh, this first Star Fox was called Star Wing. And then the second one, which is Star okay. Fox 64, it was just called Lilac Wars in the UK for some reason. <laughs> ah, okay. So, so it's, it's the kind same of game. Like, uh, it's just a different... T- teenage Mutant yeah, Ninja yeah, yeah, Heroes. Yeah, yeah, that's all yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Of, uh, Hero <laughs> Turtles. We weren't allowed to say Ninja. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, Ninjas are yeah. <laughs> So there's a question for the Christmas quizzes here. I'll have to write that one down. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is a shame it didn't come out. It does sound like it would have been quite a fun experience, actually. Mm. But um, like you said, now that it's celebrated its 30th anniversary recently maybe there will be some new Star Fox games on the horizon or some kind of collection would be cool so if I want to read more about that um, game that never was I'll put that in our show notes as well now something that we've been uh, god I can't count the amount of times we've been tagged on Twitter and uh, people have posted this in Discord I've had about four people messaging me on Facebook <laughs> sending me this game over the last couple of weeks and this is uh, a massive new Commodore 64 homebrew game called A Pig Quest I I've seen this everywhere as well, and I love the style of it and also the humor of the game. So this is for like you say for the C sixty four, and I think you know this is for me really pushing a C sixty four to its limits. Like it looks, yeah. it looks really really nice. Like I you know 
I know I'm not a big C64 guy, but I really like the look of this game. It looks like one of these titles that would look better on a CRT. Yeah. Um, a lot of the screenshots that we're seeing are like, you know, obviously digital ones, and I'm not using a CRT mm. here, but it's kind of got that, it, it's it's kind of got that blur yeah. that when you run it through a CRT, it just looks absolutely yeah, gorgeous. absolutely. And uh, it's from a studio, which I love, called Piggy18, you know, rather than Peggy18, um, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> which I think is great. And you play as um, Frank Further, um, you know, the, the human I'm, I'm, I'm a morphic, I can't say it, pig. <laughs> so, so is that like Frank yeah. Furter? Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's from Porkville. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> I didn't yeah. see that. Um, but it, it's an action platformer, isn't it? And uh, it's set across five yeah. worlds with over 200 screens, um, you know, with, you know, obviously jumping across deadly chasms and battling enemies, etc. And, you know, using items such as throwing knives and stuff like that very you know kind of like old school genre but i think it, they've just done a really cracking job of this haven't they yeah graphically yeah. very very nice for the commodore 64 and the fact that i mean i remember playing platformers on the 64 back in the day and you'd you'd only get one or two different types of enemies but there's like hundreds of different types mm. on this game um 30 massive sid tunes that appear throughout the game as well. There's like a puzzle element kind of woven into it too. You've got weapons and an armor system, um, cinematic cutscenes in here as well. There's lots of secrets yeah. to discover as well, apparently. And there's also a, uh, a two megahertz mode as well. If you've got the uh, the Commodore 128, okay, it actually runs a bit smoother okay. on there, apparently. There's, yeah, there's like animated backgrounds as well and stuff. And I think it, it looks like quite a good tribute to other games as well mm. and uh you know that they're, they're including like references to lots of other c64 titles in here and it, um they're also doing a box version yeah. which is pretty cool so you can get like you know cd and poster bundle as well with the box and uh i always love having you know physical boxes yeah, yeah and the artwork on the box looks really nice as well um, and there's pre-orders for that available now from protovision um or you can just download the uh, digital only version to um play on you know flash drive or write to a floppy disk or on an emulator um it's only like 10 pounds by the looks of it on here so um for the amount of work that's gone into this i think that's an absolute bargain so i'm going to check it out a massive new commodore 64 platformer pig quest is available now now while we're talking about impressive things as well now uh god this one looks insane a little video here um and also an article on gizmondo um about this i think we've talked about this before this is a um, a project to kind of really enhance the Super Mario 64 game. And this is called yeah. Return to Yoshi's Island, this project. Well, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. So, um, you know, the, the headline here is, this Mario 64 mod almost looks like a GameCube play- game and runs on actual hardware. And it's... Uh, it doesn't look like a game. <laughs> it looks like me. a really good N64 <laughs> game, doesn't it? <laughs> exactly. A really well done N64 game with like a bit of a higher resolution and some wicked dynamic lighting. I think I think the lighting is something here that really makes this game stand out. Well, that's the thing. I mean, this um, is essentially a project to massively upgrade Mario 64, which obviously was one of the um, very earliest if not the first N64 game, wasn't it, really? And as a console generation goes on, we get to grips with the hardware more, you know, how to push it. So, I mean, you know, the, the people behind this have had, like, 
almost 30 years mm. of experience, you know, to make a really nice looking N64 game. And I've got a feeling as well, isn't this the one where they're going to put some of the elements of, uh, you know, the demo version in there too? I think we talked about it a few months ago. You know, the unreleased version that they showed at like CEX or something. Oh, uh, yeah, I think you might be right on that one. Yeah. I, I, we we did talk about the demo version, didn't we? It was on the lava yeah. level. Yeah, I think I think you could be right on that. I think it might be the same team behind it. Um, but I, I I think I just I think they've. Uh, it's funny because obviously it's not Nintendo, but they've captured the the design as well. You know the levels and stuff like that. It is so Mario, if that makes sense. Yeah, and and they've done it by completely rewriting the uh, Super Mario C sixty four engine. And uh, what they've done is they've removed all these like performance bugs as well and kind of fixed them. So that rewrite has made it speed up and also kept it a good frame rate. And that means that they can add stuff in like um, these kind of beautiful rolling clouds in the background of this uh, demo that we're seeing. And, uh, you know, having that extra performance boost, to to me, it looks like... um, you know, when Final Fantasy VII came out on the PlayStation and people couldn't believe that that was on the same console yeah. that, uh, you know, had had previous titles that were, like, not as good as that <laughs> at all. And then this coming out on the same console, you know, uh, uh, that it was originally released on, but just looking so nice is a really, really interesting thing to see. And uh, I hope that this engine is kind of used with other Nintendo titles, Um or mods or something like that, maybe. Because I'm sure they had that N64 um, Mario builder as well, where you could build some levels yeah, on Yeah, I think that was, uh, we covered that as well, didn't we, a few months ago. I, I would love to see them, what they could do with like a Zelda game with this. Um, mm, that, I think, yeah, yeah. You know, because obviously Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask were both like stunning games at the time as well. So I think it'd be really interesting to see what they're doing on that. And I, I my first question when I first saw this, Ravi sent it to me was I was like, oh, are they utilising the, the DD drive, the disk drive or anything like that? But they're not, you know, it's it's all on no. the hardware, which I think is amazing. Which a lot of people are doubting. I mean, you look at the comments on YouTube and Twitch from the people like, this is not running on original hardware. This must be like a souped up emulator. Mm. But he's saying, no, this will run on the original N64. Um, really good frame rate as well, just like seeing this video. Even though they are running it on an emulator in the video yeah. that they show, but apparently it runs the same. They assure us on original hardware. Um, and the video goes really in-depth into how they've done it in all the lighting effects and everything. It's uh, probably way more in-depth than we can get our heads <laughs> around, but if you want to watch that, it's about 10 minutes long. So um, apparently this project is around 70% complete now as well. So hopefully it won't be long until we can uh, finally get hold of Return to Yoshi's Island because it does it really exciting for N64 fans and uh, fans of Mario 64. Yeah, until Nintendo take it down. Well, yeah, you know, that is um, probably inevitable, <laughs> but, you know, like, like all these things, get them while you can. Now, it's been a long week, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine being a ninja. How you'd feel at the end of a long week. Maybe a bit shattered. <laughs> I just told Joe, though. He said, Joe's joke that he said that before. <laughs> uh, but this is a, uh, a new indie game, which is a homage to games like Strider, and it's called... Shattered Ninja. I really like the look of this. So this is coming out on May 24th, and this has been single-handedly made by a developer called Yang Bin. And uh, yeah, man, this has got such a nice, like, futuristic cyberpunk-like look to it. Um, And it's going to be coming out on, you know, Switch, Xbox, PlayStation. And it is a pseudo-8-bit style Metroidvania, you know, platformer game you know with the big you know massive like open world where you kind of go around and unlock everything and i i just mm. i'm a sucker for those kind of games 
you know, you, you'll start off in the first area of the game and there'll be loads of locked doors. So you have to go get your different powers and stuff like that. Um, but I'm, I'm really, really excited for this one. May 24th, 2023, we're going to be seeing this and just graphically and the, and the gameplay style, very reminiscent of like you say, Strider, Ninja Gaiden, you know, those kind of like 8-bit and 16-bit, like, you know, Castlevania, Metroid Prime, uh, Super Metroid, obviously. I think it just looks absolutely stunning. What do you guys think? I think that was a, it's not a genre that mm. I've kind of been into, but I, I do remember the Amiga clones. So uh, Assassin yeah. was one as well. And I, I kind of liked it, but this this looks a bit like Axiom Verge yeah. or something in, in the kind of graphic style, because it's that new indie yes. kind yeah. of title. Uh, and uh, new indie style that yeah going made right. really popular with like Shovel Knight like ten years ago. Um, yeah. but you know we still see a couple of these style of games like you know every couple of months and you know Shattered Ninja like it's edgy it's nineties you know <laughs> I think it suits the style very well. Yeah, and it seems it seems good that you can um, upgrade your your, mm. your ninja and have like different abilities and different moves and stuff. Um, yeah, it, it just looks really well done. Do you know which system? Um, so it's for? coming to Steam first, and then with the looks of it coming to Xbox and PlayStation and Switch, um, which I think a lot of these games do. You know, they kind of test the water on on the, on Steam first, and then you mm. know see see how it goes. But you know, by by the looks of things, he hopes it's going to be coming to Xbox and, and uh, PlayStation. But yeah, twenty fourth of May will be at Steam reliefs, um, and there's plenty on his Twitter at Shattered Ninja Yang Bin. Uh, to go check out which you know i just think it looks really cool there's just so many different like upgrades for like your armor and stuff like that and you you know it looks like you're a cyborg ninja or at least with a cyborg arm um and you, you put like different gems on your hand and that gives you like different abilities and stuff which then unlocks other areas in the game which i think i just i'm a sucker for that like i say yeah it's definitely got that kind of um you know the sword effect as well yeah uh, from like Metroidvania, hasn't it? And yeah. it looks, um, yeah, I think graphically it looks really nice. And there's a nice little um, kind of one minute 20 video that he's put up there on uh, Twitter this week um, showing some of the user interface as well. That looks really clean and mm. uh, it looks like a boss fight as well he's in in, in this little clip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it looks lots of fun. Graphically, kind of looks a bit maybe late NES, yeah. early Super Nintendo. Yeah, late NES, um, Super Nintendo. Like Ravi says, that, that like, indie you know kind of like i forget the name of the studio that made um that made uh shovel knight pseudo yacht, yacht club games that's it, that's, that it, that's, it, that's it yacht yeah. club it's got that like pseudo 8-bit but then it's like really smooth and really nice isn't it and and, and like more effects than you could usually yeah, ever yeah, have yeah yeah <laughs> it's, uh, yeah yeah so that's uh, coming out in a few months now from now you can uh, wish list it on steam already and i'll link that up in our show notes at the retrohour.com now, just before we chat to this week's special guest, Mickey Mantle, uh, just a quick reminder that the reason we can bring you this podcast every week is thanks to our incredible patrons community. Now, we've actually got a brand new episode of our bonus podcast, which we do every single month. There's over 30 episodes that you can listen back to of a little show that we do called The Retro Hour After Hours. And in the latest one, we talk about some hidden gems. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. I've been trying to pick out some some of the hidden gems, and it's it's quite a good discussion actually because there's a lot of titles that you know we don't know about, but they're in our kind of personal collection. And you know, I just absolutely love the patron community. Um, we do these patron meetups, which are absolutely insane. It's like the Brady Bunch are <laughs> all on there, and there's a I think I think there was like fifty of us last time, mm. and it's amazing how like 
people let each other talk and it's polite. It's not chaos. It's more like a kind of pub conversation and a pub chat and um, people are showing their systems. It's it's really good. And also, if you do patroners as well, you can join our exclusive backers chat on Discord and get that back episodes, you know, those back episodes at the After Hour podcast. Um, as soon as you sign up, you can get onto a stream that has advertising-free episodes as well. So you just uh, put that RSS feed in and you often get the episode ahead of time as well. And you get extra content in there. I mean, in a moment, we're going to do an extra three stories just for our patrons. So if you enjoy the news bit of the show, you get that every week in the podcast, a little exclusive patrons-only bit. And, of course, the main reason that you're doing it is just to ensure that we can keep the lights on, uh, pay all our hosting costs and everything, which all adds up. So we hugely appreciate any support. And we have got a couple of new members to induct into the Hall of Fame this week. And I'll let you guys do this Hall of Fame. who have we got a massive thank you to nick taylor and ben stein who both joined us on patreon over the last week we hugely appreciate your support and if you'd like to join them all the details to join our wonderful patrons community is at the retrohour.com just a little reminder as well if you are listening on a podcast app like apple Podcasts, for example that allows you to leave a little review and a rating for the podcast that always really helps us out we appreciate this little uh, five star review and if you can put a few nice words that always helps us get in front of new people if you've got five minutes that's a really good way to help out the show um, so we'd really appreciate that and next we're going to talk to this week's special guest going inside the world of Broderbund Pixar and lots more as well with Mickey Mantle You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for the main event then when we welcome on this week's very special guest and my word, we've got a lot to cram into the next hour. Our guest this week has worked for some legendary companies including Pixar, Broderbund as well and also worked on the fantastic interactive storybooks, the living books at Broderbund too, which we'll get into all of that I'm sure with this week's special guest, Mickey Mantle. How you doing Mickey? Hello, how are you today? Very good, thank you. And um, thanks so much for coming on and sharing some of your stories with us. Now, before we get into some of the incredible titles and companies that you've worked for, just kind of winding it you know, back to day one, we also like to find out a bit of background on our guests and what initially sparked the interest. I mean, do you remember what your first experience of a computer game was, where it all kind of began? Well, my first experience of a computer game was uh, these text-based interactive uh, adventure games that were done on time-sharing systems, uh, PDP-10s and so forth. My first home system was actually uh, a VT-52 terminal into a time-sharing system. And uh, I had that for many years uh, and modemed in at 300 baht at the time to take and do work as well as, you know, uh, you didn't really go out to the internet at that point. Although, quite frankly, when I had it, the internet was available Mm-hmm. Uh, when I went to the University of Utah, uh, we we had internet between, I think, seven sites. Uh, it wasn't called the internet at that point, of course. Was that the ARPANET days then? Yep. Yeah. It's interesting. It's whenever I talk to anyone that was um, you know, online, you know, dialing into mainframes back in that era, they always talk about how they'd uh, play MUDs and titles like that, you know, kind of offline, you know, well, the off-peak kind of hours. I mean, were, were you doing that much of that, like gaming on there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I actually... Uh, did a lot of work off at home, uh, but uh, worked uh, awfully hard at the office as well. But I, I continued that at home over the weekends and so forth. So, yeah. Well, how did you learn to program then? And what were some of the kind of earliest examples of 
well, software that you made. So just let me back up a little bit because it, it comes into play a little bit later on. Uh, yeah, sure. I, I was actually a musician and uh, I went to college uh, primarily to avoid the draft at the time. I uh, went to the University of Utah and then uh, I stumbled into the computer science department and uh, never looked back. Uh, computer science has been my main focus since then. So uh, I started programming there in a variety of languages from Sail and, you know, uh, Fortran, assembly language, and uh, did a lot of things at the University of Utah. I think that computers and music are very intertwined, as they could say. The, the creative part of writing a program is very similar to composing a song uh, and music. So uh, it probably triggers the same uh, neurons up there. Well, talking about your entry into the industry, I mean, you worked at the um, legendary Evans and Sutherland, who were a, a pioneering company in the early computer graphics field. So tell us how your journey took you there and how did you get the job and what were you initially working on there? Well, I was actually recruited into Evans and Sutherland by a, a fellow who I went to college with. Uh, I went to the University of Utah and they were located actually on the University of Utah campus in a bunch of old World War II barracks when, the, when they first started. And one of the uh, hardware designers, uh, he and I had shared a lab together and got to be friends. And he reached out to me. Uh, I'd graduated from college and done a project uh, unrelated to computer graphics per se. But, uh, and he reached out to me. And so very quickly, I joined Evans and Sutherland two years after I graduated from college to take and work on their Picture System 1. It was originally called the Picture System because there wasn't a 2 yet. 3D analog line drawing system. And what was that used for then? Oh, it was used for a variety of things from, you know, visualization of architecture in line drawings, uh, visualization of molecular models. Uh, some of the original uh, work and systems went to molecular modeling sites where they tried to visualize what these molecules would look like. Of course, now uh, it's continued on. And doing much more of that. Well, uh, Evans and Sutherland, you know, they employed some amazing people like uh, Ed Catmull and, um, you know, the co-founder of Pixar as well, Jim Clark, and uh, who started Silicon Graphics. And what was it like working alongside these guys in that atmosphere? Well, to tell the truth, Ed and Jim may have been employed, but they were never employees per se. In fact, they worked on projects at the company, they have, may have worked on side projects for the CEO or who may have just supported them in their uh, PhD projects. Uh, I, I do have a lot of stories about Ed and Jim, but also a lot of other p interesting people there at the time. Ivan Sutherland, of course, the legendary founder of graphics in a way. Jim Kajia, Gary Demos, uh, Gary Watkins, who did the first hardware implementation of uh, hidden surface removal. We also had a whole crew of guys who, in the simulator group, uh, had founded that. Rod Rougelot, Bob Schumacher, Ed Wild came from GE, where they had built simulators, uh, some of the simulators used for NASA, and uh, turned the company into a simulator company, quite frankly. The Interactive Systems Group never actually made a profit, to my knowledge. I have a great story about Jim Clark, though. Uh, so when he first yeah. made his uh, chip down at Stanford, he brought it up to Evans and Sutherland to show it to him. And uh, I remember 
Uh, after the meeting, I, I talked to uh, the VP of engineering there, Gary Watkins, and I said, so that's, that's kind of interesting. What are, you gonna do, what are we going to do about it? He said, well, I told him we weren't interested. We, we could do that. Of course, they didn't, but that's a different story. And Silicon Graphics came along to be the primary uh, competitor to Evans and Sutherland at the time. Oh, so that could have gone a very different way if they'd have, uh, <laughs> they'd have took that on. You, you just never know. Sometimes the uh, yeah. ego gets in the way, perhaps. I don't, <laughs> don't know exactly what caused it. Could have been caused. Could have been lots of things. Uh, just one more thing about Edison Sublin before we move on. So yeah, one of the other things they actually made, you may not even be aware of it, is a, a digital planetarium. And as a matter of fact, that's all that's left of Evanston Sutherland. They're the leading planetarium maker in the world. They make digital planetariums. They bought Spitz, who makes uh, the domes. And uh, so today, if you go look at evanstonsutherland.es.com, you'll learn all about their digital planetariums, of which uh, I, I had hand in creating it because uh, the creator of that uh, product, uh, if you will, Steve McAllister, uh, he and I went down to a planetarium and I bought him a star book. And the next thing I know, uh, he had digitized all the stars and had a little planetarium going on screen. So well, it, it seems like, you know, they're, they're a really interesting company. And, um, you know, like we said, kind of, you know, really pushing the boundaries of what was possible using computer technology at that time. And I mean, I know their systems were used for um, early CGI as well on the uh, you know, legendary movies like Tron and Star Trek as well. I mean, did you work with any of these clients and any memories you can share about those? Oh, yeah, I did, as a matter of fact, uh, both on Tron and Star Trek. Uh, Robert Abel and Associates was a leading uh, effects house, if you will, at the time. And uh, they were having some problems, so I flew down to L.A. and worked with them on some problems, trying to get the things correct and solve a couple little issues for them. But they used it on a lot of commercials as well as uh, feature-length movies. It was it was quite a place. It was uh, very amazing at the time. Well, you you joined uh, Pixar in 1986 as the general manager. How did you get the role there? So while I was at Evans Sutherland, one of the things I did was I gave training courses on the picture system uh, software and hardware. And one of the training courses was out at... Uh, NYIT uh, school out in Long Island had bought a picture system and the guy who uh, was in charge of that little group was Ed Catmull. And uh, he and Alvy Ray Smith, who was there, lots of other people uh, from the graphics industry came into that. Bob Greenberg, famous professor from Cornell, uh, Dave Rogers from the Naval Academy. They, they came to a course I gave there and I've remained friends with all of them since, uh, including Ed. And uh, when Ed uh, decided that they should spin off Pixar, which was really a image computer at the time, it was a piece of hardware from uh, Lucasfilm, he uh, called me and I flew down to interview with him. And it was something I was looking forward to. They had a great lineup of people there. And uh, quite frankly, I had spent 10 years at Evans and Sutherland and felt like it was time to move on to other things. And so uh, it turns out it took them a year to actually spin out of Lucasfilm. Mm -hmm. And when they did, almost the next month, they hired me to come in and uh, lead up their productization of their hardware and software. 
Were you familiar with, um, because obviously you you knew Ed from Evans and Sutherland, I mean, were you familiar with kind of what Pixel were doing at the time then? Were were you kind of keeping an eye on them? Well, there wasn't a lot you could learn. There was, you know, uh, 86, a little pre-internet. We did have email, uh, could communicate with them via email, but I, I didn't really know a lot was going on until I went down and they gave me a tour. And by the time I got there a year later, it had progressed quite a bit and they had hired quite a few people in as they spun out. Well, 1986, I mean, that was a very exciting year for Pixar. I mean, that was a year that they released the legendary Luxo Junior desk lamp animation, which, um, you know, still regarded today as a breakthrough in computer animation. I think, you know, from, from reading about that, that was the first CGI movie to actually win an Oscar. So, I mean, have you got any memories of that? And, you know, after that came out and they, they won that award, did, did it kind of change the company much? Oh, it did. Uh, so, Steve Jobs, of course, he, he was involved in Pixar and luckily he didn't drive up to Marin County where they were located very often because uh, a little bit of Steve goes a long way, I guess you could say. So he had ideas of commercializing the Pixar image computer and uh, he actually hired, set up a sales team and hired, I forget how many salesmen it was, but it was probably almost a dozen around the United States to sell this device. And I told him one time, I said, you know, Steve, that this really isn't a consumer product. Very few people can program it. It was a 2901 bit slice microprocessor that you had programmed in bit slice 2901 assembly language. And it had four channels of data. It was a SIMD architecture, very advanced for the time, right? They actually sold the patents to that off to uh, Sun Microsystems and SGI or or Motorola, excuse me, uh, and Intel. And it became the uh, instruction set within those chips that are still there today for, for multiple data uh, instructions. But he didn't quite get it, and he set up the sales force, and uh, they ended up selling maybe 100 of these devices. They were about $80,000, and a lot of it was bought by one company, uh, uh, Philips, where, who set up a research project around these to do a 3D visualization with the uh, image computer, mostly based upon software that Pixar had written. And we actually did a whole turnkey project for Philips, which was called the PIX2000, which was a radiology machine. People don't know that Pixar's looked around for lots of different ways to make money. And then finally, they made Luxo Jr. And that completely changed everything because Steve said, we should make a movie. And he immediately went off and sold Disney on it. Disney also was a purchaser of the Pixar image computers, using it for their uh, animation systems, which Pixar helped develop. So Pixar had a lot of connections into Disney. And when they uh, got the uh, green light, if you will, to take and make Toy Story, uh, everything was that. And they laid off the entire hardware division and shut all that down. Do you have any memories of Steve that really stuck out? Well, you know, uh, I didn't spend a lot of time with him one-on-one, but I do remember at one I, at one point I, I decided to leave Pixar just after they got the green light. And uh, he, he tried to talk me into staying, made me a lucrative offer, which in retrospect I should have taken. But... Uh, I was committed to go, and uh, I remember him talking to me 
And as he walked out of the room, he was in my office. As he walked out of the room, I went to myself. I said, you know, the reality distortion shield is real. If he had told me that wall was blue, I would have believed it. And it was white, of course. So he, you know, he really had a sense about him that was truly unique. I've never, I've encountered similar things to that in a few people, but it was truly unique. And you can see why, you know, one should believe in, should have believed in Steve and what he redid at Apple, I cheered on from afar. Yeah, because I mean, at that time, I mean, you know, 85, he'd left Apple, he started Next, hadn't he? Yeah. And obviously he was a major shareholder in Pixar as well. So definitely a visionary. I mean, I think he could see things that a lot of people couldn't see at the time, maybe. Yeah, the Next was a fabulous machine. We did a lot of work. Mm. And you were managing, you know, you mentioned software development at Pixar, including their their famous Render Man, which was um, used on movies like Aladdin, uh, Lion King, Terminator 2. So tell us a bit about Render Man then. How did that work and why did Pixar have to develop their own software? I mean, was there nothing kind of out there like it? Did that did they require a custom in-house solution? Well, there really wasn't a renderer as good as what could be done with RenderMan, originally called Raze, uh, after Point Raze. Uh, renders everything you've ever seen was the acronym Raze. It had a lot of features that other uh, rendering systems didn't have then. Uh, they all have similar features now. Yeah, including the shading language, which was Pixar innovation. So they really, it was really, they had no choice. Plus they, all of these things didn't treat the anti-aliasing like a render man did, which did sub pixel anti-aliasing, which was uh, a unique feature at the time and made the films look so good, quite frankly. What was some of the most uh, rewarding experiences that you had at Pixar? I think that, uh, like all of my experiences with various companies I've had, seeing it become successful, uh, we struggled at times. I mean, uh, there were times when I would have to call Steve's accountant and beg him for payroll. Uh, at the time, uh, I took that over, kind of keeping the company rolling for a while. So, you know, there were some challenging times going through layoffs there where we laid off a lot of people. Things you don't really think about in terms of Pixar, who now is, you know, thousands of people large and a tremendous campus and uh, a string of blockbuster hits that is untouchable, probably. I mean, you mentioned before about Toy Story. I mean, I know you, you kind of moved on to Broderbund, but were you there in kind of the, when the seeds of Toy Story were planted then? I mean, any memories of that? Well, you know, I had left by the time it came out. I left when they got the green, just after they got the green light. And then five years later, two, two landmark events for Pixar happened. One is they went public about a week before Toy Story hit. And so uh, Pixar came out and went public. And then Toy Story hit the uh, theaters and was an immediate hit. So it was a, it was a good year for Pixar. Why did you end up leaving Pixar then and uh, making the move to Broderbund? At heart, I've always been a software guy. I like making software. I like making software products. And at the time, uh, we hit, were closing down the software products group, if you will. And it was being, everything was being devoted exclusively to making films. Now, there's a lot of software that they continue to make in making films, but I wanted more. Uh, we'd started dealing, 
fooling around with Macs and PCs at the time. And uh, I felt like the co- future was in consumer software. And when I got a, a feeler that it, would I be interested in becoming the CTO and vice president of engineering at Broderbund, uh, I went and looked at them. I actually looked at other companies at the time as well. And it was the living books, quite frankly, that got me to leave Pixar. I don't think I would have done it if it hadn't been for that. They showed me uh, a prototype of uh, the original living book, Just Grandma and Me. And it was so unique and so fun uh, that I said, okay, uh, uh, I'll do that. That on top, one of the just personal side is I, I didn't think that Ed would ever let go of the uh, CTO role. He was president and CTO at the time. And I wanted a chance to kind of uh, not live in his shadow. So, And you mentioned the living books as well. I mean, obviously they started at Breiderbund and they, you know, they're a series of interactive adventures for kids. Um, obviously you've brought back in recent years, which we'll talk about in, in just a bit. Um, but going back to that initial prototype that you mentioned of living books, tell us a bit about the prototype then and what was it about it that caught your attention? Well, it was the first interactive children's book that had true interaction. I mean, there are things that came out that read a story to you, but this, everything on every page comes alive. And it was done, created by uh, Mark Schlichting, who in my book is right up there with John Lasseter in creativity. I've worked with both of them very closely and uh, they're, they're very similar people. And so Mark was the driving creative force on this had the support of the CEO. Mark's was true, truly a creative guy, and this was truly a landmark product. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I was frustrated. Well, we'll go into it later as talk about how I, I finally brought the living books back. And after 10 years of working with them, I finally was able to secure the rights to bring back just grandma me this very first thing that I saw from Pixar, which we just have barely released out onto the market. Well, the early 90s, I mean, around that time, we saw a shift from floppy disk-based games to CD-ROM. Uh-huh. So, I mean, how did that change the development of games? Well, <laughs> it, it changed everything, of course, because you could actually get a lot more data on it. It wasn't, you, you couldn't expect people to load too many floppy disks onto their computer without saying, this is crazy. Uh, so you could finally put, you know, what, was it 700 megabytes on a CD? But the challenge was that it was very slow to read data off of that CD in the beginning. And so we actually had to work around that issue and did lots of things. And part of the design of the Living Books products was that we could take and buffer a page, start reading the next page, assuming they're going to go to the next page while they're working on the current page. So we had time to actually read a page in that's why it's a very page-based application. Now, of course, I can run it off the internet page at a time and there's no delay in anything. So uh, things have come a long way in terms of bandwidth in many different directions. Well, you've described programmers like Glenn Axworthy and Matt Siegel as uh, rock stars behind Living Books. Uh, could you tell us about the roles they played and uh, how their skills like complemented each other? So Glenn was a driving force at Broderbund. He had made one of the original Carmen Sandiego games. Uh, and back then he actually got royalties from those games. Later they, they cut all that kind of thing out. But Glenn was a truly exceptional programmer. And in my book, Managing Unmanageable, I talk about how 
having exceptionally great programmers can make a big difference. And that's been true in every company I've ever been in. There's usually one person who stands head and shoulders above it. And Glenn was, was that guy and Matt was up there with him. We had a lot of great programmers, don't get me wrong, and I don't mean to belittle any of them, but Glenn clearly had a unique talent. And as a matter of fact, he made the living books possible because he created a system whereby it was a simple scripting language to take and make these characters move, laugh, dance, play sounds, and so forth, that an animator could actually script uh, animator, and also they had technical directors to help that. So the animator would do the animation, the technical director would impart the scripting to it. So all of these products are data-driven. Quite frankly, it's much like RenderMan. Matter of fact, I wrote a paper for Computer Graphics World, which is up on the wonderful website, talking about how similar RenderMan and these living books are, because they're both data-driven, meaning that you can go back and redo that with different technology, okay, without chain, without doing a lot of work. They just run off of a script. And as a matter of fact, Pixar showed that because they went back and they reissued most, many of their films in 3D stereo imaging. And they did that just by taking and tweaking the scripts a little bit, changing the viewpoint and rerunning the, re the uh, rendering. So the power of a good architecture, uh, RenderMan was architected by Pat Hanrahan and Tony Apodaca and some great people at Pixar, and just like uh, Glenn architected the uh, Living Books product. You know, I've heard some really amazing stories about how the team kind of worked in those early days, you know, like um, animator Donna Bonifield working in a really warm attic with a bunch of CRT monitors really heating the room up, and I've heard stories, that, you know, of, of makeshift recording studios because you didn't have access to a proper audio booth. I mean, what were those early days like then? Was it all a bit kind of, you know, makeshift and having to make do with what you had? Well, it was. Uh, by the time I, I came to Broderbond, they had decided that they should invest in some things. One of the first things we made was a, a full sound studio for recording voices as well as music. So... We, we came a cut above in that regard, and I think that they tried to do the right things across the board there. But before that, of course, and in many, many startup companies, you, you do get by with what you have. And the early Broderbund products certainly did. They had no sound studio. Uh, uh, the first prototype, just Grandma and Me, was recorded by Mark. He did all the voices or some of the voices, many of the voices. So you, you kind of have to make do with what you have. And the creative force will see it through, I guess. Uh, I wanted to touch on Matt Siegel for a second also. Uh, Matt. Yeah, please do. While Glenn took care of that, Matt actually did a lot of the tools to take and make the animation and so forth uh, possible in Macromedia Director at the time. They did all the Living Books products in Macromedia Director. But Director was often used by people as the delivery, which, of course, didn't, didn't work very well in a in a consumer setting. So Matt created ways to extract the data from a director and match it up with sounds and lots of different tools to take and actually make everything work well. He also had help with it with Dave, Lu Dave Lucas and, uh, and others uh, on the team there. But uh, it was uh, uh, a lot of invent it as you go and make it work. You know, around that time as well, I remember there was a 
a spate of these like living room multimedia devices that briefly came along. Like um, Philips had the CDI and there was the the Commodore CDTV as well. I mean, did you ever look at those as potential platforms and did you expect them to be a success? We did and we didn't. Now, the, the did part is they came to us and gave Broderbund money to take and do projects on though. Phyllis did one, I think it was, I think that there, you know, was CDI, I'm not, I don't remember for sure. But we did one of the first living books, just Little Monster at School was done, funded by Phillips. And then of course it just, we took it out as a product, a consumer product as well. Uh, I don't think Phillips ever actually successfully launched that product. But the hardware wasn't quite there. It certainly got there over time. Well, I mean, around that time, Broderbund had a massive hit. I mean, they published Mist, yes, which became the best-selling CD-ROM title, you know, for many years, broke yeah. records. What memories have you got of Mist, and um, how did that change Broderbund when when that became such a big hit? Well, it changed it by making it actually a player in the gaming world. Uh, they had had educational games and so forth, but they weren't hardcore gaming, and so as a result of Mist, we. Uh, created a whole group headed up by Ken Goldstein, who focused on gaming and hardcore gaming. And uh, they, they really never had another hit like Mist. They had a follow-up uh, with uh, Riven, mm. and uh, Riven didn't reach the same level of success that Mist did, but both were very innovative. Both, quite frankly, were not developed in-house. They were brought in-house by uh, a group called Cyan, who actually worked up in Spokane. And, and Broderbund was more of a distributor and marketeer than developer almost. I say we didn't help. We didn't do the development, but we did help the development a lot. Like the, when first this first came out, it used QuickTime because they did all the development on Apple. Well, you can imagine taking and having QuickTime on a Mac and then trying to deliver that on a PC. I had a team that actually worked directly with the QuickTime development team down at Apple to take and make Windows work well. In fact, I still in my Rolodex, I still have the guys who worked on that back there uh, and keep in contact occasionally with them. Uh, they were a very creative team, uh, but you know, Windows was, was second. You know, they didn't care as much about Windows, though they had a very passionate developer there did, who made it work. But it just imagine because Mist used all these embedded videos to make to make it very interesting. It was one of the first use of that kind of, of video, and of course, it could only be done because uh, QuickTime had just barely come out. Yeah, and I think I remember seeing screenshots of it even and being blown away at those rendered graphics. I just think. I remember a lot of my friends buying CD-ROM drives just to play Myst. You know, it was a, it was actually the the game that would sell CD-ROM drives, wasn't it? Because people want to play it that much. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that video was actually it was it was quite small in size, but the way that they did it was Art, uh, like one twenty eight by one twenty eight. Yeah, yeah, in, in yeah. postage stamp, really small <laughs> small windows, but they had that like kind of tape flutter on it and a bit of a, you know, kind of a a bit of mystique around it, which really made it work. And then they, uh, of course, the data rate, you had to go to the lowest common denominator. So there may have been other CD-ROMs out there, but you had to go low. So so working the with single speed drives team to get that right was, was a challenge. Well, uh, Living Books ended up spinning off its own company in 1994. Were you able to 
like hire more people and then grow in size? Yeah, it was actually a joint venture between a broader bond and Random House who owned many titles, including Dr. Seuss. And uh, we did three Dr. Seuss titles there. And they moved from the Broderbund campus down into San Francisco, where a lot of the animators lived, and I had quite a, a great uh, office here. I actually went down there once a week to be part of the uh, review of what was going on so that I could help manage the programming team. But uh, they did hire a lot of people, but unfortunately, this thing called the internet caught up with them about the same time. Mm -hmm. And what happened when the internet came along is the fascination with CD-ROMs died off because there was other type of entertainment available. So that eventually that was uh, closed down, sold back to Broderbond, and then eventually just closed the whole thing down. So I know they spun off as it was the learning company, wasn't it? Well, um, it spun off. <laughs> That's an interesting story in and of itself. The learning mm -hmm. company... Uh, actually bought Broderbund. Now, little precursor to that, Broderbund was in heavy negotiations with um, Electronic Arts. And right. we went through due diligence and we all expected that to take and happen. Met up with all the, the Electronic Arts tech guys and did a lot of due diligence, making sure that it was a good fit. And it was would have been a great fit, quite frankly, because they have a passion. And, of course, they've been successful ever since uh, for great, great, great games. But in the end, the negotiations broke off before the marriage could happen. And that Broderbond actually paid a several million dollar breakup fee, as I recall. Let me go back now to the learning company acquisition. Mm. So the learning company acquisition happened uh uh, I actually left Broderbund in 1997, and shortly thereafter, Learning Company came in and acquired Broderbund. Now, they not only acquired Broderbund, but they acquired several other companies along with it and built up a great portfolio of essentially all the great learning educational applications out there, along with some other things like MIST and learning books although learning, living books are uh, educational, but they had this completely massive portfolio, which they then convinced Mattel to sell, to buy. So the learning company bought Broderbund, as I recall, for $460 million, and that was the crown jewel of the portfolio they created. And they turned around and sold it to Mattel, Mattel yeah. for... I think it was over $4 billion. And so- That was only a year later, wasn't it? It, was, it wasn't very long after. Uh, the problem was the way they convinced them to buy it was they stuffed the uh, learning company guys, in my opinion, uh, and you can read about it if you go into Wikipedia and learn, uh, search on uh, electronic or uh, learnings company, uh, what happened is they actually stuffed the channel, meaning they pre-sold product into the channel to show the revenue growth was incredibly high. Well, that was good until Christmas rolled around and they got all these returns from the stores. So when I say channel, I mean the distribution channel, which was the, yeah. you know, the, the game stores and the 
the uh, office stores, and so forth. So what happened was a year after the learning company was acquired by Mattel, Mattel did two things. They fired the CEO who oversaw that, and then they sold off all of that and got it out for, my understanding is, $1 to an organization that was kind of put together to do it mm. and promises of future revenue, which I don't think they ever got because that company was in turn then sold to a company in Ireland called River Deep, uh, who took the products and then in turn merged, actually acquired Holton Mifflin Hardcourt, where all those assets reside today. If you go I, on I, Wikipedia and you look up the learning company, it's pages and pages and pages and quite a detailed story. I was trying to look through that before we spoke. And yeah, it's like I, I saw some links to other places where they called it one of the most... Uh, you know, painful or disastrous kind of takeovers in business history. And it seemed very messy yeah, well, the way it, it ended. It, it absolutely was. As a matter of fact, there's been a Harvard Business uh, School paper about it. Well, um, Kid Picks was uh, part of so many people's childhoods. You know, it, it won awards. Uh, what what memories have you got of this product and how important was it to Broaderbund? Well, Kind of like Mist, Kid Picks was actually developed by one guy, Craig, I forget his last name, off, I'm sorry. And he lived up in Oregon, as I recall, and he did all the development on it. We, we helped with the packaging and creating some assets for it, little things on the side. But he was the driving force and probably still is the driving force. Kid Picks is still available today from uh, a company called Software Mac Keyout. And uh, they've been doing games for a long time uh, and mostly acquiring Broderbund products to resell. Yeah, it was Craig Hickman, wasn't it? That was a guy. Craig Hickman, that's it, yes. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting product, though, as well, because I thought it was quite a nice, um, you know, it's have, having kids being able to have that creative outlet and having, you know, a bitmap drawing program that kids could use that wasn't as complicated as something like Mac Paint or Deluxe Paint on the Amiga, you know, it was quite a nice idea. It, it, it it's truly was, was and is still a creative great product uh and they still sell quite a bit of it is my understanding well mickey let's move to more recent years then because then um, we did kind of touch on the fact that you've brought living books back to life why did you decide to do this then and why was now the right time to to bring them back so first of all uh when i during my entire tenure at broderbund i always felt like they were among the best products that broderbund made the most creative the most innovative in many ways, of course, the technology and so forth, which we talked about, but also the number of products they made was quite, quite uh, unbelievable. And because there had this engine created by Glenn Axworthy and others, really it was one piece of software that ran all of these products. Now, at various times, I had thought to myself that the way that software works, you could take and port that to other platforms relatively easily and have all these products available. Mm. But as the end of the 2010, about then, I began to think what I was going to do next. I had joined a company called Gracenote, which had a slight diversion from 3D graphics into my original love, which was music, provided metadata for all the CD-ROMs out there. And as a matter of fact, they were responsible, I hate to say it, for helping create 
the ripping phenomena which drove the music industry into the ground. So we provided metadata when you put CD-ROM into the drive. Uh, we would look at what the contents of CD-ROM were. It was kind of like a fingerprint, look that up in database and tell you what CD it was. We later extended that in different ways with digital audio recognition and, and video recognition and video metadata. But at the end of that tenure, which was a good run for me, it was a 10 years, we sold the company off to Sony. And after almost, you know, 40 plus years doing software in startup companies, I had been in a number of software companies, every one of which uh, was successful and is still making products, I might add. But the most of all have been acquired at this point. Uh, by other companies, but they're still alive and kicking, making products. But I decided that uh, I was going to retire. And so uh, as Steve Jobs took and brought out the very first iPad, I said, oh my God, this is the perfect vehicle that we wish we had when we made the living books. And so I set my mind to uh, try to bring living books back to a new generation of children, not so much out of pure money, though I thought there was a definitely a business opportunity there, but also because I thought these books are timeless. The way they were designed, the interaction, they still play well today. And uh, of course, they didn't run on the latest versions of Windows or they were written for Mac OS 9. So that didn't work. So it had, took work to do it. So I actually commissioned Glenn while I was still working at, at Gracenote to take and develop a prototype to see if it was feasible to take and make these run on modern operating systems. Uh, so Glenn Exworthy took that on and made a prototype. And by the time I was ready to retire, which was in May of nine, 2011, he had a prototype working, and so I retired in May, and in June, uh, I started a company to take and do that. Which is wonderful interactive storybooks. Yes. It, it was originally called Living Books Alchemy. Uh, nobody knows that, but it uh, quickly, we, we did a name search and found a name we thought was appropriate called Wonderful, and rebranded the company uh, in and changed the name of the company to Wonderful Inc., uh, for which it's been ever since and known as Wonderful Interactive Storybooks. I love the fact as well, you mentioned, you know, you saw Steve Jobs doing that demo. It's uh, interesting how Steve kind of came back into your life and influenced things again all those years later. Yeah, he, he did. Different ways. Uh, I learned to respect, uh, never underestimate him like I did when I uh, was at Pixar. And uh, the iPad, well, of course, has been an incredible success. And I... I have many of them, and and of course, in bringing the these storybooks back, I I, I hired Glenn and uh, Matt Siegel as consultants, working full time or part time almost on these. And Matt, by the way, has been with me ever since, and is consultant to Wonderful through the end of two thousand twenty two. Yeah, it's great you kind of got the, the band back together then as it was. Yeah, we did. And Mark Schlichten came on and helped direct what changes. we. He, one of the things Mark said is, if you're just going to take and bring the products back, I don't want to be part of that. But if you want to bring them up to today's standards, then we'll do that. And so 
these products that we make are, are the original living books. They haven't changed, but we put layers on top to make them more interactive, to, uh, to do things you couldn't do back then very easily. We changed la languages dynamically on a, on a page. Uh, there were, all these books were written, or many of these books were written in foreign language or produced for foreign languages, such as Spanish. Now, some of them go in U.S. English, U.K. English, French, German, Spanish, Italian, and Portuguese. So... There are lots, even though there's one title, that was, that was just Grandmommy I just mentioned. Uh, mm. They're in a lot of different languages that you can market to different countries in different ways. And having the power of the internet and the app store as well, it just makes that delivery so much easier than yeah. when it had to be CD-ROMs in brick and mortar stores, didn't it? Yeah, well, the app stores are a blessing and a curse. They're mm. a blessing because they do provide a mechanism to take and, to take and make your life easy in distribution but there's also much, so much product in there and not very well, uh, not very good taxonomy, if you will. It's hard to find mm. anything. And so getting noticed in an app store is difficult. So it's a blessing and a curse. Well, I think it has proved, Mickey, that, you know, you mentioned, you know, the fact that Grandma and Me is back, you know, 30 years later and, um, you know, children today still enjoying it on new platforms. It proves that it was, you know, a timeless story and still capturing children's imaginations. I mean, if people want to get hold of these, um, you know, reimagined versions of, uh, the classic living books, where can they get them from then? What's, what's the best place to go? So uh, they're available on the Apple App Store, of course. We actually have most of, almost all of our products there. Some have been taken off the App Store, unfortunately, because they need to be revved for the latest version of iOS. But uh, mm. most of them are there. Uh, we're in the process of revving them uh, right now. Uh, on Google Play, uh, also in the process of rubbing them there. Only a few remain. They've been removed because they're quote unquote, don't fit the, uh, though they work well on Android devices, uh, they have some issues that Google is uh, religious about fixing. And they're on the Amazon app store where all of the products are available as well. Amazon is a much easier store to work with. I think they know more about being a store than the other two. And I think it's great as well. I imagine a lot of people that played these games originally when they were kids and now introducing it to their kids, which I think is a really nice thing, isn't it? And I have, I've talked to a lot of parents who have called me or written me uh, at Wonderful to say, thank you so much because we have a, child, a child who is severely handicapped uh, mm -hmm. either by uh, uh, autism, a lot, a lot from autistic handicaps, if you will, that these, these products were important to them when their childhood, and now they're lost without them. And, and so you brought them back. Thank you so much. It's been very rewarding in that regard. Yeah, it must make it all worthwhile when you hear stories like that. Yeah. And Mickey, obviously, I mean, you've had a, you know, several decades in the industry, and I know you've put a lot of your uh, kind of experience of managing software teams into a book as well that people can get hold of now. Yeah, I actually started that book in 2000, and... Uh, it actually started with an idea. I don't think I've told the story before. An idea that one of the programmers had back at Pixar. And he said, and it's become a cliche at this point, but at the time it was a unique thought. It says, managing programmers a lot like herding cats. And I said, that's a great name for a book. And so I started thinking about it. And by the time I got around to doing it, of course, it had become a cliche. 
and I would never use that, but that helped drive the thought about it. And so I, I got a co-author and over 10 years, we actually put this book together. It was originally published in 2011 at the end of that year, just after I retired. And uh, we worked hard on it to get it out there. It might've been 2012. So it's had a lot of great reviews on Amazon. They continue to uh, sell copies of it. And in 2000, they asked us to do a second edition, which we did, uh, updating it a bit. And we're working right now on a chapter to go along with that second edition about managing remotely. So nice. It, it's a living book. And we, <laughs> if you can use a phrase, it's living as a book. How's that? And we have a website called managingtheunmanageable.net where you can go read all about it and read more about content in the book as well as uh, see presentations we've made, videos we've made, uh, podcasts we've made, uh, as well as a lot of tools that go along with the book that people can use. Fantastic. Well, I'll put a link to that in our show notes as well so people can just click straight through to it. Great. And um, obviously the, the wonderful website as well. Uh, Mickey, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, reminiscing with us over the last hour. And uh, best of luck with everything. Thanks so much for being our guest this week. Well, uh, it's my pleasure. And i so glad to find people like you all are passionate. Thank you. Thank you.